Crescendo clap, eh? Thought I'd heard it all. Uh, <clears throat> great. Well, good morning. My name's Dale. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here. I'm married to Jane. I've got uh, three daughters, Paige, Charlie, and Jordan. And if you're here as one of their guests, then a very warm welcome to you as well. And a very warm welcome if you're here, as Kevin's already said, for uh, Ruben's dedication. Uh, or if you are part of the current Alpha course, it's lovely to see you. You're most welcome this morning. You're welcome with us any Sunday when we gather. And every Sunday when we do gather, we look at a passage from the Bible to see what we can learn from it. What is it that God wants to say through us? You know, uh, God says that the Bible is living and active. It can speak to us today. It's not a dusty old book full of old facts. It's God's word. And we believe that as we look at it, God is able to speak to us. And I believe that's what he's going to do this morning. And over the last number of weeks, uh, we have been going through uh, the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, which really explains what Jesus's first followers kind of did just a few days, years after his death and resurrection. So we're going back in time this morning. Right? We're going back in time. I was talking to somebody earlier and I said I was listening to the radio and they played David Bowie's uh, song. Is it a space oddity? You know, ground control to Major Tom, that one. And the DJ said, whoa, that song, great song. Sounds so fresh, even though it's 50 or 60 years old. I felt well old at that moment in time. This morning, we are going back 2,000 years. And we're going to read about what happened in the days just after Jesus. And where we're up to in the kind of passage that we looked at, Last week and over the last few weeks, two of Jesus' followers, Peter and John, one afternoon are going to a temple to pray, and they come across a man who couldn't walk, who's been crippled from birth, and he's begging outside the temple. And Peter looks at him and says, in the name of Jesus, walk. And as they help the man to his feet, Jesus comes and heals him, and the man is able to walk, and he's able to praise God and start jumping around. And this causes a crowd to gather. And this crowd, they first stare at the man because they can't believe this man that they've seen every day begging, unable to walk, is now jumping up and down and praising God. And then they start to stare at Peter and John because they think, well, you two have done this miracle. But then Peter and John address, uh, address this crowd who have gathered because of this healing. And that's what we looked at last week, week before. And so now where we come in on the story, Acts 3.11, this is where we are picking up what we are going to read today. You've got some notes, and I've printed out in red the Bible parts that we are going to look at. So let me read it to you, Acts 3, verse 11 to 20. I'm just going to pray before I read it. Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning you would help us to understand your word, help us to understand who you are and what you did. And we pray that through this story, you might speak to everyone in this room this morning. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Okay, Acts 3, 11 to 20. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them, 
in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we made this man walk? The God of our father, sorry, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. To help us understand this passage, we're going to look at three key things that Peter says to the crowd. He says in verse 15, you killed the author of life. Then he says also in verse 15, God raised him from the dead. And then in verse 19, Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. We're just going to look at those three statements in a bit more detail. So you killed the author of life. What does Peter mean when he says this? Who, who is he referring to when he says the author of life? And why does he place the death of the author of life at the crowd of this feet who have gathered round? Well, clearly he's talking about Jesus as being the author of life. He's already said that God did this miracle of healing to glorify Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about what happened to Jesus, what happened at his trial, what happened at his crucifixion on the cross. And so Peter here is referring to Jesus, and he's calling him the author of life. And of course, Jesus has stated himself that as God the Son, he was the beginning, he was the starter, he was the creator, the initiator, the author of all human life. It says this in John 1, talking about Jesus. It says he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that has been, without him, nothing was made that has been. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So we understand that the author of a book is the one who wrote it, the one who had it in their mind, in their heart, who created it. Who, but then it's the author who actually causes it to come to, to, to life, to being, to write it down. Well, if you like, Jesus is saying, do you know what? I, I wrote the book on human life. He created us. He made us. He said, I hold life. I hold the planets, the stars, the universe together. 
Do me a favor. This is the only thing I'm going to ask you to do. Take a breath. One, two, three. Jesus gave you that. If Jesus hadn't given it to you, you wouldn't have been able to take it. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of every human life, including you, including me, including Quincy, including Sophie, and including Reuben. See, biologically, Quincy and Sophie made Reuben, right? No need to dwell on that fact. It's just true, <laughs> right? Biologically, they were involved. But as Sophie said, the Bible says that God knitted Reuben together in her womb. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, you made me and formed me, give me understanding to learn your commands. See, Quincy and Sophie had a part to play, but Jesus is the author of Reuben's life. He formed him, he made him. Which is why today we're thanking and dedicating him to God and praying that one day, like the psalmist goes on to say, Reuben will learn to understand God's commands for himself. The first one, Jesus said, the greatest one, of course, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Someone asked Jesus, what is the first and greatest command? Jesus replied in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's be honest, and no offense to Quincy or Sophie here, or to any parents, but I don't think any two humans could ever make something as beautiful, wonderful, complex, and unique as Reuben. Babies are God's handiwork. The only one who can make a baby is God. He is the author of life. And we do pray that as Reuben grows up, he will always be a credit to his parents. He might test their patience once or twice, but we pray he'll always be a credit to them. But you know what? He will always be a reflection of the God that made him. Let's get back to the passage. So Peter is accusing this crowd, some of his fellow Israelites, of killing Jesus, of killing the author of life. This is a pretty strong statement when you think about it. He's not telling them they've been a bit naughty, they've been a bit bad, they've stolen an ice cream, they were a bit horrible. He is accusing them of murder and the murder of the Son of God. So the question is, why? Why does he accuse them of this? Well, really, there are kind of, there, there are kind of two reasons, or, or rather there's one reason, there's, and there's a surface one, and there's a deeper one. Let's just think about the surface one. See, if we put ourselves back in the time of this incident, back to Jesus' time, try and put ourselves back in the shoes of Peter and the crowd. Jerusalem, where this happened, was a city. But in those days, cities were not the millions and millions and millions of people as they are today. Historians argue over how big Jerusalem was because nobody really knows. But it was probably around 40, 60, 80, 100,000 people. It's kind of no bigger than a big town. It's a Crawley kind of size place. And there was no TV, and there was no internet, and there were no pubs, and there were no bowling alleys. And so everyone gathered when someone or something 
interesting, different, unusual came to town or happened. And Jesus, as he went round healing and teaching, he gathered thousands of people as he healed the sick and taught about God. Healed the sick, taught about God day after day. Jesus was the news of the day. I opened my paper this week. It said on the front page, Brexit. And then it said page 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Editorial comment, 12, 13, 14, 15. Well, if you would have opened the paper back then, the Jerusalem Standard or, you know, the Jerusalem Times, if they had one, it would have said Jesus on the front and then it would have said pages 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He was the big news back then. The whole of Jerusalem had been talking about him. If you could get to where he was, you went. And so when he was arrested by the chief priests, everyone came and gathered. When he was handed over for trial to one Roman official and then another Roman official, the interest grew, the crowds gathered. It was literally like the whole of Jerusalem was following, were part of, were watching, knew at first hand the events that happened to Jesus. And so presumably... There were people in the crowd who would have been in the crowd, who were in the crowd that Peter is talking to, who also would have been in the crowd gathered at Jesus' trial under this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, only a few weeks before. At that trial, Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. But it was the crowd, bribed, G'd up, by the religious leaders who were scared of Jesus, who were crying out for Pilate to crucify him. Even when the Roman governor appealed to them, even when he said, I can find no fault in this man, the crowd carried on shouting, crucify him. And so eventually, Pilate releases a murderer and condemns Jesus, an innocent man, to death. And so no doubt... In the crowd, this very day that we are looking at, there were some people who were also in the crowd crying for Jesus to be crucified. Maybe they were there as Jesus was led to the cross. Maybe watching as he was spat and abused. Maybe they physically stood there and watched as the Son of God was nailed to a cross. And so Peter says to this crowd, you killed the author of life. If you like, that's the surface reason. I think there were people that were there who were there watching and participating when Jesus was nailed to a cross. But let's just dig a little bit deeper. There is actually a deeper reason. See, even the people in the crowd that day who weren't at Jesus' trial or crucifixion or were maybe there but weren't shouting, I think even those people... Peter is still accusing of killing the author of life. And a key question you've got to understand is just to take a step back for a moment from what's happening and ask the following question. Why is Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on a cross? He's God. He could have come down at any time. Jesus said that himself. Neither the Roman soldiers or the metal nails are going to stop the Son of God coming down off a cross if he decides to do it. And this is God's Son we're talking about here. 
It can't simply be that he happened to find himself in a bad situation because a crowd got a bit out of hand and a Roman governor made a bad call. I mean, the crowd did a bad thing in disowning Jesus. And Pilate did a bad thing as a ruler, crucifying an innocent man. But this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. His fate is never going to be decided by a crowd or a Roman governor. And so Peter, in the passage that we read, he goes on to explain to them that Jesus, God's Messiah, and his suffering on the cross was all part of God's plan. He said, look, he foretold this through the prophets long ago. Thousands of years before Jesus came, various of God's prophets said this is what would happen one day to God's son. So, for example, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, explained what Jesus was going to do. I've written a chunk of it for you in your notes from Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus came, but he's describing what happened that day on the cross. The prophet Isaiah said, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, just another word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the wrongdoings of us all. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, though God made Jesus' life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. That Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the Savior, would suffer death on a cross was always God's plan. So the question is, why? Well, as the prophet Isaiah said, and as Jesus said in various other places, he came to take away the people's sin. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he looked at him and said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came to die in people's place. He came so that he could have people's sin placed on him. He came so that the penalty that they should pay, he could pay. He came to, to atone, to make, if you like, right for the things that people do and the things that people say that God doesn't want them to do or say, for the ways that people break God's good commandments, we looked earlier at what Jesus said. Jesus is summing up of the commandments to love God and to love others. Well, Jesus pay, came and died on a cross to pay for all the days and the times and the ways that they hadn't done those. And if you like, Jesus took all those things and he called them sin. 
He put all those things, if you like, in the bucket or the container of sin. And I think it's amazing how much we do not want to acknowledge, we do not want to accept, we do not want to talk about, we do not want to think about sin. The truth that what you and I do, how we live our lives, actually can either please or can offend a holy God. I wrote this preach out. Uh, we are old-fashioned biro and paper, you know, to begin with, because I'm old. And then what I do is I use that facility on my iPad where I speak and it types for me. And then I go into it and I, you know, play about with it. Well, I did that this time. And do you know what? Every time I said the word sin, it typed a different word. Every time. I couldn't believe it. I said sin. It said sing. I said sin. It said sim. I said sin. It said sick. I said our sin. It said housing. I, I had to go through and change everyone. How much do we want to avoid this problem of sin and this issue of sin when even the automatic typing thing on our machines won't even say the word? And yet it remains the single biggest issue in the life of every man and woman, regardless of age, intellect, wealth, nationality. You can't address it through how much money you have, how much power you have, how much influence you have. It's not affected by how you look, by how many friends you have on Facebook, how successful or unsuccessful you feel life is or not, because it's an issue between the individual and God and can only be sorted out through Jesus. And Jesus said the price that we pay as humans for that sin is separation from God, our creator, because he is holy, which means he is completely perfect. He's completely sin-free. And you and I simply can't be with him while we've got this issue of sin undealt with. And so Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. And that price was his own life. But once that penalty for sin has been paid, has been removed, that which was separating us from a holy God was removed. And so for some in the crowd that day, maybe they understood because maybe they were at Jesus' trial and maybe they cried out, crucify him. They understood when Peter said, you killed the author of life. They put their hands up. But I think there were others who weren't involved in that, but they knew enough of what Jesus had taught and they knew the things that they'd done wrong in their life. And they knew the days and weeks and years that they'd lived without any reference to God. And they knew that Peter was also talking to them, that it was their sin that put him on the cross, that they also were responsible for killing the author of life. It's sobering, isn't it? Sobering to me anyway. And after giving this most terrible news to everyone that they killed the author of life, God's son, I would imagine that what they're about to get is the biggest telling off in history. I imagine that it would be bigger than Alex Ferguson in, in his hairdryer treatment days at Man United. 
bigger than the telling off that I hope Eddie Jones gave the England rugby team after that debacle uh, of the second half playing the Scots. I mean, I imagine what's going to come next would be God's going to smite you. Thunder, lightning. He's going to send down plagues. You know, that's what I imagine is going to come next. But Peter doesn't say anything like that. He says, but God raised him from the dead. At the moment you killed Jesus, the son of God, God raised him from the dead. It wasn't the end of the story. How can it be? We're talking about God here. Again, let's try and get our heads around this. You see, of course, at the time, the rumors of Jesus being raised back to life were all over Jerusalem. Hundreds of people had seen Jesus. The disciples, his followers, had gone from being this small group of men and women cowering in fear in this upstairs room to suddenly, boldly being out on the street proclaiming Jesus is alive. We've spoken to him. Uh, And this is in the very place where just a few days before Jesus was hung on a cross and killed. And now, right in front of the eyes of this crowd, this man who's been crippled for years gets healed. And the two guys who have been involved, Peter and John, are saying, Jesus did it. Jesus did that. It's proof he's alive. We told you he's alive. He said he was going to be alive. We told you. So on the surface, The crowd that are gathered are being presented with proof that God has raised Jesus back to life. His followers are saying it, despite the fact that they could be killed for it. I mean, not many people risk their life for a lie. If they didn't genuinely believe that Jesus had been risen, why would they say Jesus is alive, basically on the very spot to the very people who had killed Jesus? And the same kind of miracles of healing are now happening that were happening when Jesus was alive. Hang on a second. What did Jesus do? He healed people and he taught us about God. All right, but we thought we'd finished him when we killed him. But now these people who followed him, they're doing the same stuff that he was doing and they're saying that Jesus is alive. The crowd that are there are being presented. They're being faced up to the reality that maybe God has raised his son Jesus back to life. But again, that's on the surface. Let's look a little bit deeper down and ask the question, why did God raise Jesus from the dead? I suppose the Bible puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. It says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made Jesus, who knew no sin, completely perfect, to be sin for us, taking our sin and placing it on him, round his shoulders. And he's going to deal with that on the cross. And therefore, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the right relationship that Jesus lived before God and had, that gets transferred to us. And our sin that was separating us from God gets transferred to Jesus, and he deals with it on the cross. That's what that verse says. So once the penalty for sin was paid, once Jesus had become sin for us and paid for it on the cross, there was no justifiable reason for God not to raise his son back to life. He'd paid for sin, but it wasn't his own sin. It was other people's sin. So the Bible says things like the grave couldn't hold him. It actually would not have been right and just for God 
to have not raised Jesus back to life. Because he never did anything that separated him from God in the first place. The only sin Jesus ever had was other people's sin. And so in a way, God had to. It was fair. It was right. It was always the plan. That as Jesus had always been obedient, always loved God, had no sin, that God would raise him back to life three days after his death on the cross and seat him at his right hand, where Jesus is ruling over this world, including our chaotic Brexit moment in 2019. If you live in the UK, Jesus is still ruling and reigning over everything. So Peter and John tell the crowd, it's true, Jesus is alive. He's done what he said he would do. They're not simply saying they're witnesses that this crippled man has been healed. They're saying they're witnesses that sin put Jesus on the cross, but God raised him up and he's alive today. And this crippled man's healing is proof of that. So they don't get told off. The crowd don't get told off. They get told what Jesus did and why. He paid the penalty for sin so that his perfect life could be credited to us. They get told what God did and why. God raised his son back to life because he's now conquered sin and he's conquered death. And only then does Peter tell them what they should do in response. He says to them, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Let's just look at that for a moment. What did he mean when he said that? Repent and turn to God. I suppose repentance starts with saying, yeah, yeah, it's my, I did this. I'm responsible. There's something about realizing, yeah, I am responsible. It means to realize you're wrong. You're in the wrong. You've been going the wrong way. You've been living your life without God. Now turn your life and live your life for God. Maybe he's been on the periphery of people's lives. Maybe he's not featured in people's lives at all. Well, change that. Make him the center. Make him number one. Someone once explained that repentance is turning from sin and faith is turning to God. And that's what, the crowd, that's what Peter tells the crowd to do. He makes them this amazing offer. He says, if you will do that, you will have your sins wiped out. Jesus is making them an offer that their sins can be wiped out. Not just their past sins, their past sins, their present sins, and their future sins as well. That which keeps you separated from God can be removed. He's literally offering, I will pay the price. I will pay the penalty for your sin. And once that separation is gone, then you can be reconciled to God. They probably expected a telling off. They probably expected a telling off that would end by being told, and so from now you owe God such a massive debt because your sin put Jesus on the cross. You're going to have to work hard and live for him every day. And maybe if you're good from morning to night for the next 70 years of your life, maybe just maybe you'll earn enough good God brownie points to pay off what you did to his son Jesus. I wonder whether some of them thought that. But it's just not true. I mean, how good would you have to be to pay off that debt? Number one, what would you have to do? You, you, my son died for you. What would you have to pay? And it's not what they're told. It's not what Jesus had taught them. Jesus makes them an offer. 
free and full forgiveness of your sin if you will repent, turn, and put your faith in him. And what he did on the cross, that actually on the cross, what he did was enough to pay for all your sins and for you to be reconciled back to God. If you will trust him, if you will make him Lord and Savior of your life. I don't think the crowd expected this. But it was exactly what Jesus had been teaching. It's what he had been telling them. If you don't believe me, open your Bibles and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You will see this is what Jesus had been telling them as he went around performing miracles. They just didn't understand. But now, maybe after the cross, I think some of them begin to understand. So this passage said, the crowd put the author of life, Jesus, on the cross. But on that cross, he paid the price for their sin, including the one of putting him on the cross. And all the other ones, the things they said wrong, do wrong, the years, days they've lived without reference to a God who made them and loves them. And now he invites them to receive forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, friendship with God, if they will put their faith in him. This is an amazing passage of scripture. I suppose it does just leave us to ask the question, how does this apply to us 2,000 years later in 2019? Well, I still believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross and God raised him three days later. His disciples in the Bible were witnesses to that. And today, we as Christians are witnesses of that as well to anyone who is not a Christian here this morning. We believe, we have repented, we have put our hands up and said that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. However, through placing our faith in Jesus, I believe that my sins are completely wiped away. They are completely gone. I am not trying to earn my way into God's good books. I'm not trying to earn or justify my salvation. I believe all I brought was the problem. I believe that Jesus gave the complete answer. When I stand before God one day, which I believe I will, I will not say anything good or otherwise that I did. I will simply say, I did wrong things, but Jesus paid the price for me. And I put my faith in him. That is all that we are standing on this morning. So if you are not a Christian here this morning, I just want to say, the truth is, you don't deserve to have your sins forgiven in exactly the same way that I didn't deserve to have my sins forgiven. I also want to say, no matter how good or moral you are, it will never be good enough because God set the standard himself and that standard is his standard, which is absolute perfection. God is perfect in all his ways and the standard he sets for us is that. And none of us are perfect. But there was a perfect one. There was one who has lived a perfect life, and his name was Jesus. And if you will put your faith in him, then his perfect life can be credited to you. You haven't earned it. You didn't deserve it. doesn't matter what you do. You can't get it any other way than to put your faith in him. And I believe today Jesus makes exactly the same offer that he made to me, that he made to the crowd who stood before Peter and John that day, that if you will repent, if you will turn to God, put your faith in Jesus, 
your sin will be wiped out. If you want to talk any more about anything I've said, please come see me at the end or maybe talk to a Christian who you've come with or that you know. If you're on the Alpha course and you're here this morning, I just want to say to you, I hope you've enjoyed the course. I hope you've enjoyed the meal. I pray you've been well served by us as a church and the team. But please know this, their heart's desire is that you would meet with Jesus. And if you're friends or family of Sophie and Quincy, please do continue to help them. They will need all the help they can get in the years to come as a guy who's got three kids. We need all the help we can get. And please do continue to delight in Reuben. He is a miracle, but then every baby is a miracle who points not to their parents, but to Jesus, who is the author of every life. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.